It was so delightful in the first and second grade when they handed me the little scissors and the green and the pink paper and the teacher taught me how to cut on the cutting board into little strips, the green and the pink paper, and how to fashion a little paper basket, and then to fill the little paper basket with little strips of green paper which resembled grass, and then to place in the little basket little candied eggs or jelly beans, and to assist all the other children in decorating our first and second and third grade classrooms. We would paste little Easter baskets and figures of bunnies and eggs on the windows. And our little classroom in Eugene, Oregon was always decorated according to the seasons. And surely at Easter, Ashtarte, Ashtaroth, uh, Easter time, I get mixed up on those words, we always decorated it with all these symbols. It was so exciting. I wanted to do it just like the rest of the children. And so, of course, even though my parents said it was pagan and I heard my father saying something about some pagan symbolism that went over me just like water off a duck's back. And so, of course, I would find some of these little packets you could buy for about a penny of dye, and I would go in and ask my mom if it would be all right if I could hard-boil some eggs. And she let me hard-boil the eggs, and I would sneak some dye in the water. I don't know if anybody in this audience ever did that, but you could get pink and green and blue and orange and all kinds of dye, and it would stick to those eggs in that hot water. And they would come out the color of this little floral arrangement up here. I mean, absolutely beautiful eggs. Lovely to behold. And I did it. It was my egg, you know, a green egg or a blue egg. And so I would go outside my house, and usually my brother Dick and I had been a little derelict in mowing the yard, and some of the grass around the exterior of the house, especially around where the faucet leaked a little bit, would grow up pretty high. And I would go around and make little nests with my hands in the grass around in our lawn on the edge of the house, and I would put an egg in it, and then I would pretend I didn't know where the eggs were. And then I would go all over the house pretending to look for the eggs and find the eggs, because other kids got to go where they really didn't know where the eggs were, and they got to go to Easter egg hunts. And they were conducted at their churches, and they were conducted at other kids' homes. And I even heard that they conducted one on the White House lawn where children could go and search around and find all these eggs. And I wanted so bad to be a part of what was going on. There's nothing prettier than a little tiny bunny hopping around, is there? Cute little thing. I mean, I would hate to be in competition with a bunny if people are flipping around television, they see me, and then there's a bunny. They're going to stop and watch that bunny. Oh, look, there's a rabbit. And little kids, I mean, if I were to teach my grandchildren, look, that's green Swiss cheese up there. And they would try to say, as they're at the age now, they're trying to say every word you say, and they'd probably come up with green Swiss cheese or whatever. They'd say something. And in five or six years, I would have my grandkids convinced that really is not the moon of desolate pockmarked rock. It is really green Swiss cheese, because they would believe exactly what I told them the moon was composed of. Now, they never ask. You didn't ask, and I didn't ask. How many of you ever hunted for Easter eggs? Can I see your hands? Oh, good. Well, 90-some percent of the audience. And I, I'm talking to an audience that knows what I'm talking about. And it was fun, wasn't it? And you got to eat the eggs that you found, usually, didn't you? And even the bunnies were oftentimes made of uh, chocolate or some other substance. You even got to eat the rabbit. I don't know if we should really contemplate draw this analogy out to its ultimate conclusion, or you end up like Hansel und Gretel, who ate the whole house, including shingles, and, you know, then boiled the witch. But anyway, we ate the rabbit. But we never questioned when we were six and seven and nine and eleven what in the world eggs had to do with rabbits. We really didn't even know at that age that bunnies didn't lay eggs. Matter of fact, we probably, I'm, I don't really remember that well, whether I assumed when I was six, that rabbits laid eggs or not, I, I, I probably did. And I imagine some of the rest of you did as well. What did that teach me? Nothing that I remember, except that it was time for the flowers to bloom. And it was time, maybe once in a great while, after it had been raining for about nine months, we got to see the sun in Oregon. Uh, it was time for the trees to leaf out. It was time, maybe in a month or two, I could go fishing again. Uh, it was spring. And it was also getting toward time when school would be out. I know that was important. And eventually I could look forward to the summer. 
But it didn't teach me anything about life. It didn't tell me what to do in a certain circumstance or didn't have anything to do with, with dating or with preparation for marriage or child rearing or getting a job or establishing a home or what line of work I wanted to go into, whether I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer or an interior decorator. So I don't remember that there was anything that they really taught me except that Christ was born among the lilies across the sea and that we rolled Easter eggs around and we hid them and we hunted for them and that we ate chocolate bunnies. Isn't it strange how the churches of this world studiously avoid teaching biblical typology? Because in the biblical types of the Passover, the days of unleavened bread, of all of the annual holy days, there are beautiful, deep, meaning, meaningful lessons of life taught. For example, with regard to the Passover, I think that most Protestant evangelicals understand that Egypt is a type of sin, that Pharaoh was a type of Satan the devil, that the Israelites were a type of all of those on this earth who are going to receive salvation, to whom Christ comes and proposes repentance, and when they repent, they receive the blood of Christ, in a sense, shed abroad in their hearts, and they receive circumcision of the heart, and the blood of Jesus Christ, like the blood of the Lamb that was spread upon the doorposts and the lintels of their homes back then, is now in your heart, figuratively or spiritually speaking. And the death angel, Satan the devil, who is going to try to send you into Gehenna fire, will pass over. And you will be omitted from that terrible fate, and instead will be taken through the waters of baptism, which were typified by the Red Sea, as it plainly says in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, they were all baptized unto Moses. And the 40 years, we know 40 is a symbol of tempting or of testing or of trial. And they endured the rigors of 40 years of wandering in a wilderness called sin. And for those 40 years, they ate bread that was rained down upon them from heaven. That was the bread of life, the staff of life, the sustenance of life. In the Latin, it's pan. But there was a pagan god named Pan that meant all or everything, pan-American, panoply, etc. It comes from a Latin term that means all or everything or everywhere. It also happens to be the word for the staff of life in the Latin language. In the Spanish language, pan, P-A-N, is the word for bread. I suppose the word pan, when you have a pan in your kitchen, came from that very source. It is a pan because it is merely a vessel in which you bake the staff of life which is bread. So they existed for 40 years on the manna that God rained down from heaven. And here is all this typology, including the shadowy typology of the fact that once God broke the hold of Satan, Pharaoh, and Egypt, and these captives who were absolutely in slavery, as we have been to our habits and appetites and to society around us and Satan's ready-made world, were on their way out of Egypt. They had not yet come to baptism. They had just made the decision. The yoke of Satan had been broken. They had taken the first step. They were on their way, and lo and behold, they came to the Red Sea that appeared to be an impassable barrier. They were hemmed in by mountains on both sides. There was an ocean in front of them, and that's when Moses, to their whimpering cries and terror, had to say, Stand ye still and see the salvation of the Eternal. And the waters were parted, and they walked through dryshod into the wilderness of sin. And what happened? Pharaoh's armies, typical of all of the evil thoughts and deeds and rotten things we've ever said or thought or done, came right down into the bottom of the Red Sea, and God took away the winds that were holding the waters back, and the waters came crashing together and drowned the Pharaoh and all of his armies, symbolizing that your guilty past is buried beneath the waters of baptism and is forevermore done away with, and you walk into a time of trial and testing with a fresh slate starting brand new. Now, did I say one word as I went through some of that typology with you about whether or not you ought to observe anything? No, I didn't. But were you ever taught in the Protestant evangelical churches to which many of you went, in your lifetime were you ever taught the rich typology and the symbolism of the Passover, of the Days of Unleavened Bread? Did you even really hear about the Days of Unleavened Bread? 
You heard a little bit about Pentecost, especially if you went to a Pentecostal church, but you probably didn't hear all the story in exactly the way it is. Whether or not you heard about the Feast of Trumpets, I sort of doubt. Most people don't, except they remember that certain events take place among the Jews on that day. Maybe you heard about Yom Kippur because of the war, 1971, or 73, I think it was, that took place in the Middle East, the Day of Atonement. But were you ever taught the typology of the atonement and how it relates to Christ in the New Testament in the 8th and ninth chapters of the book of Hebrews? So what are you looking at? It's almost like there is a conspiracy out here among all of the Protestant evangelical churches, the entire 400 and some odd bodies of various church organizations, to just keep deathly silent about any of the annual holy days of God laying on the shelf whether or not you ought to, quote, observe them, pay attention to when they are, or get in your car and go off and go to church on that day, refrain from work on that day, and to keep it holy. Forget that, and just put it on the shelf, and let's just say, let's study it in the same way that you might pick an encyclopedia off the shelf and study about Edward the Confessor or Edward I as a, an historical point of interest, something historically. Imagine that. Ancient, old, Jewish, they like to thank customs that are replete with a rich fabric or tapestry of lessons about the New Testament Christianity of Jesus Christ. But they won't do it, will they? They just won't do it. They never did in your experience. They're not doing it today. They're not going to do it next week or the week after that, nor next year, nor the year after that. They will not do it. They will avoid it. They will ignore it. They will pay no attention to it because it is supposed to be Jewish. What does this day, the first day of unleavened bread, teach us as opposed to the emptiness of eggs, rabbits, and the day that is dedicated to Isis or to Ishtar? Ishtar it was pronounced the silent age, pronounced Easter in ancient Babylon, and it featured eggs, which are symbols of life. It featured rabbits because of their rapid procreativity and their very short gestation period. It featured other symbols of life. The pagans looked at a beautiful lily and thought they saw copulation in, in uh, progress. And so they worshipped the lily flower because it looked to be something which uh, had to do with the sex act. In the twelfth chapter of the book of Exodus, you read of how they were to keep the land of the fourteenth day and kill it in the evening. If you will read my booklet on the Passover, is it for Christians, you will see, and you can see right here very, very simply, by simply counting on your fingers exactly when that was. It was on the evening of the 14th, at the going down of the sun, just barely before the beginning of the 15th day. That is the only explanation this passage of the Bible allows. Verse 8, And they shall eat the flesh in that night. Which night? The night of the 14th? Read on a little bit. It says, verse 14, This day shall be unto you for a memorial. You shall keep it a feast to the eternal throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Count seven on your fingers from 15. And you will come to 21. Count seven on your fingers from 14, and you're going to find you've got eight days. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day, the first day of unleavened bread, the first day which is the feast, until the, the seventh day, that soul, that individual, shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, say that which every man must eat, that only, food preparation and so on, may be done of you. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Then they went out of Egypt on the 15th. It was the first of seven days of unleavened bread. And when they ate the feast, the feast was the repast of roast lamb and bitter herbs. And they ate it in the following manner, as you read in this chapter, standing up, with their loins girded, with their shoes on their feet, 
with their staff in their hand. They ate it, and it was called the bread of haste. It was not allowed to leaven. There was no time. Quick question from some of you housewives out there who are good cooks. If you make your own bread, and you can either buy baker's yeast or you can use various forms of it and so on, and you prepare a sponge, only women who are cooks and make bread probably know what that is. Some of you men might think it's a sponge you clean the bathroom with. It's not. And some of the women are smiling. And then you take a nice big glass see-through pan, you know, and you, you put about half up to the top with your sponge and your dough, and you allow it to leaven. About how long does it take for that dough to swell up? Not before you cook. I mean, not cooking it, not under the influence of a lot of temperature or heat, but just letting it sit there. About how long does it take? Sometimes about an hour. About an hour. Hour and a half, two hours. And that lump of dough will be twice as big as it was when you put it in the pan. The reason the bread you buy down here at the grocery store has that round top on it is because it swelled up. It got all puffed up as it was being leavened, as the little yeast spores were dividing, and its carbon dioxide formed little pockets and bubbles of air inside that dough and made it very light and fluffy. Now, they ate bread. They did not have any leavening agents allowed to become in contact with it, but I'll guarantee you that there are yeast spores in this room. There are yeast spores on the tip of your nose, and they're sitting there dividing even as we speak, as obnoxious as I can't see any, but they're there. All you got to do is go get the World Book Encyclopedia and look up the article yeast, as I did this morning, once again to refresh my memory, and look at these incredible little plants that divide and that bud and that reproduce in their billions and that they're found everywhere floating around in the air, just free-floating in the air. And they will land on the dough unless you cover it and keep it completely covered in a canister or indoors. All you've got to do to get leavened bread is mix dough, put it outside, or let it, let it be in the free air for a while, and it will gradually become leavened. They were to eat this with unleavened bread, and they were to eat it in haste because they were in a position much like a starter in a mile run, already in the starting blocks, waiting for the starter with his pistol in the air to fire the gun to tell them they were going to go. Again, if you have any question at all about the chronology of those events, please be sure to read my book that entitled The Passover, Is It for Christians? because it wades through all of the relevant scriptures and shows you the chronology. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Why? When just a little later on in this, well, a little later on in the 23rd chapter that I'll turn to of Leviticus, you see that the next beast comes along, and he tells them to be sure to use as an offering to the eternal leavened bread, because it is finer, because it's more of more value, because it tastes better. In verse 17, when it talks about counting up to Pentecost, you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth deals. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. How about that? Fifty days later, Counting from tomorrow after the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, during the days of unleavened bread, they come to the day called the 50th day, which is merely the Greek word Pentecost. That's all it means. Originally called the Feast of Shabbats or Shabuah, the Feast of Sabbath. Some people say weeks, but what is a week? A week is not any seven days. A week is a divinely ordained unit of time which is not observable by any astronomical phenomena not observable by the motions of the earth or the sun or the moon or any of our solar system or any of the Milky Way or anything else. It is only kept track of by human families of human beings who were told anciently, today is God's Sabbath day, and have been keeping track in a weekly cycle, a cyclical passage of days, numbering seven in all ever since. A week is a divine unit of time. Now, we say, I'll meet you here in one week. That's an English word. But the original word was not week at all. It was Shabbath. Sabbath. Unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days. And they were to bring out a baked offering to God of fine flour with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the eternal. So there's nothing evil about leaven, is there? 
Christ used leaven as an example in the 13th chapter of Matthew, the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is like when a woman took leavening and he put it, she put it in a loaf and until the whole loaf was leavened. And that is talking about God's people on this earth who are gradually going to become up into the hundreds of thousands and the millions by the time of the great heavenly signs and the end of the great tribulation and the second coming of Christ. And eventually billions of members of the human family will be born into the God family because God says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and an acknowledgement of the truth. Leaven by itself is an invention and a design and a creation of Almighty God. Yeast spores are designed of God. They act exactly as God causes them to act. Without them, we would have a real horrible time surviving. I could go into all of that, and I won't, but believe it or not, with all the various enzymes that are there and present in soda, 2.6% of the Earth's crust is made up of sodium or soda, and there are all different types of it, like sodium bicarbonate, sodium borate, sodium chloride, which is common salt, two poisons put together in a mixture that makes it palatable for us, sodium fluoride, sodium hydroxide, sodium nitrate, baking soda, believe it or not, is actually a very lightweight metal. And baking soda is used today in toothpaste. They finally got around to putting it in toothpaste because it's an abrasive. It's a lightweight metal, believe it or not. It's used in medicine, glass making, production of gold, preservatives, insecticides, photography, fertilizers, cleansers and soaps, and it neutralizes acids. It's also a leavening agent, as you know, bicarbonate of soda. The most common leavening agent of yeast, and yeast floats around freely in the air. It's a little plant, as I've said, a tiny plant that has a wall and a nucleus, the protoplasm buds and then somehow divides and clones itself and drifts off as an exact copy of its parent. What causes that? Well, without getting into arguments against evolution, I'm here to tell you that the days of unleavened bread are not to eat unleavened bread because leavening is bad for you or because it is in itself inherently evil or that it is wrong. No, it represents something. Let's turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 16, where Jesus Christ gave a lesson to his disciples about leaven. Time and time again, he had called the Pharisees blind leaders of the blind. He had said in the earlier chapter, chapter 15, this people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, verse 8, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me. Is it possible, question and answer time, to worship Jesus Christ, to worship God, and to do it in vain? Answer, yes. Well, in what way? Teaching for doctrines. What's the word doctrine mean? Truth. It's all. It just means truth. It just means a point. It just means an explanation of something. What is what is. It means what is so. It means truth. Teaching for truth. Teaching for the way things are. Teaching for the way things ought to be. Teaching for what is. Teaching for doctrine. Man-made traditions. Commandments of men. Do's and don'ts of human beings. Oh, it's fun to have human beings do what you tell them to do. That's more fun. Kids learn that in big families. One of them tries to boss the rest of them. Some of the greatest swelling, egotistical concentration of power you will ever find is sometimes in a man standing out on the highway with a stop sign in his hand, just directing traffic around a detour. It's so much fun for some people to tell other people what to do. Petty officers in the Navy chief petty officers and sergeants in the army are good examples of that. There are other examples of that throughout every human organization, including churches. That was when he called the multitudes and told them it wasn't that which came out of a man or which went into a man that defiled the man, verse 11, when they were talking about eating with unwashed hands, ceremonially unwashed, not that they were not eating with clean hands, but they hadn't ceremonially washed their hands. And he said, not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man. It can't defile the man. It can give you a stomachache. It could poison you. It could even kill your body, I suppose, if you mix arsenic and ground glass or something. But that which comes out of the mouth, his words which are motivated by his heart or his innermost being, that defiles a man. Then came his disciples and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? That was also the hallmark of the Pharisees. 
they were very, very quick to become offended. A little later on, Jesus said in the 16th chapter and verse 5, the disciples were come to the other side. This is after the miracle of the loaves and feeding the four and the five thousand. And Jesus said, verse 6, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees, both of them. Now, they were at two extremes. The Pharisees were the extreme right, and the Sadducees were the extreme left. And they were religious organizations, and the word Pharisee means apartist. It meant one who was a separatist, or one who was separate or apart. So they had the us-them theology, the ivory-towered, we are better, we are righteous, and they are sinners. And they looked down on all other people and perceived themselves as God's elite. So the disciples reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we've taken no bread. They really missed that point. Which Jesus perceived, and then he said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason yourselves you've bought no bread? Don't you understand that I could create bread if I needed to? And he proceeds to mention the four and the five thousand. How many baskets they took up? Verse 11, How is it you do not understand that I didn't talk to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Why? Leaven is a type of sin. The doctrines of the Pharisees and Sadducees were actually a type of sin. What does sin do? Sin holds you in its clutches, and you are in bondage to sin. Sin is the transgression of God's laws, yes, but sin is innately in human nature. It is a part of human nature. Just like leavening is a part of the air you are now breathing. Sodium, soda, all of those various derivatives of it and the types of sodium, sodium that there is in the earth are creations of God. You cannot escape them. You cannot live without them. Plants cannot live without them. There can be no photosynthesis of plants breaking down through enzymes and digesting, as we say, fermenting various other things like bacterial action in the soil that ferments decaying vegetable material without leavening agents present, believe it or not. They're helpful, and they're everywhere present. So the lesson goes a little more deeply than just liturgy or ritual or ceremony or eating some flat bread or buying a box of matzos or sitting around and getting a recipe from some lady in the church and making your own unleavened bread and eating it faithfully every day for seven days. We're to learn the lesson that leaven is latent everywhere about us. It is everywhere in this world. It is found in plants, it's found on the ground, and it's found floating around in the air. This world is a world that is in the grasp and the grip of a great exalted being who has perverted himself and is called the prince of the power of the air. An illustration of how he used that power was when Job became the subject of controversy, and Satan told God, there's your servant Job, but if you take away the shield of angelic protection you've set around him, he will curse you to your face. And God said, no, he won't. Go ahead. I'll put everything that he has in your power, but you're not to touch his life. You're to spare his life. And what did Satan, who was called the prince of the power of the air, do but cause a tornado to wipe out everything Job had? So Satan, for that brief moment in time, had the power to actually create a violent storm. He had the power to inflict disease. He had the power to afflict Job with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And Job could not see the leavening that was present in him, which is the most difficult of all leavening to ever detect, which is self-righteousness. Turn to Matthew 23. Why did Jesus say, avoid the leaven of the Pharisees? What was there about these religious people, these good people who prayed and said, I fast twice in the week, and they prayed continually, and their whole life was a posture of religion. They wore religious garments. See, I don't do that. I, I, don't, uh, I understand there was an article somebody gave me the other day. I didn't know until I read it that the Mormon people wear, a cer wear ceremonial underwear. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Some people are nodding yes, and other people are saying, I didn't know that. Well, they do. 
It was a big newspaper article. And they explained how that there is a particular garment that is sanctified by the Mormon temple that is some kind of very lightweight. They stressed that in the article. I'm glad of that because when August comes along, it could be a little tough. But it's supposed to be very lightweight underwear. And that way they can go around and wonder, he's got his underwear on today, you know. They can wonder about each other, I guess. <clears throat> they don't have it visible. They don't have it like if I came out here in a robe, you know, with a little bit of white right here and a big purple or a black or a crimson or whatever robe on, you'd say, oh, he's wearing a religious outfit. Or you'd say, oh, he's gone crazy. Or, oh, he's, uh, <clears throat> he's going to a costume party or whatever you would think. But you would know if I came out like that that I was wearing religious garb. Well, you couldn't miss a Pharisee because he strode along the street with his head held high and a funny conical-looking hat on his head, and he had this great big thing right here that listed all of his good deeds. It was almost like epaulets hanging down from a general's uniform. And he had this robe with his phylacteries on it that were made very broad so he could write all these things on it. And the Urim and the Thummim was there, and all of these, tap, all of these beautiful tribal uh, decorations and everything. And, oh, they were proud. In the 23rd chapter of Matthew, Jesus dealt with them orally, openly, before a big crowd of people, and to the disciples. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They occupy a position of authority in the nation. They possessed the power of the Sanhedrin, which conveyed the power to them of life and death over people. They could order someone stoned to death for infractions. They... The Sadducees had control of the temple, and the Pharisees had control of the Torah and the book of the law and the traditions of the fathers and administered justice because it was, in a sense, a theocracy, almost like a satrapy under Roman occupation, like a Persian satrapy allowed to have a certain amount of autonomy because the Romans didn't want to mess with Jewish religion. They let them pretty much alone so far as their religious uh, doctrines and practices were concerned. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, like keep the Sabbath, keep the holy days, pay your tithes. But do not ye after their example, after their works. For they say, and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. What would you say would be a grievous burden for you to bear? Well, let me just point out one. Let's say that you as a young girl were 16, and you were in a home where it was a very un unhealthy and a, a very uh, horrible environment. Maybe your father was a drunkard and beat your mother or whatever. Along came a real charming young guy, and uh, he was Mr. Handsome. Maybe he was a football star on the local high school team. And you got all Twitter-pated. You were in love, and because you wanted to get out of there, you ran away with him, and he loped and got married. Maybe you took off to Las Vegas or across the border to Mexico and got a quick Mexican marriage and lived a little while, and about six months or a year, maybe you got pregnant, and a child came along. He became abusive. He couldn't earn a living. He just sat around and burp beer and watched dirty movies on TV and went off and got a, a VCR and, and, and got dirty movies and sat there watching them. So finally, you couldn't stand it anymore, and you divorced him. Well, years went by, 5, 10, 12, 20. You met a mature, nice man, and you came to love this man, and you got married. And... You have now been married to this man for another 20 years, and you had three more children, and you've got two grandchildren, and someone comes in and tells you very sternly, you have been living in adultery for all this time, and those children are, I'm not going to say the word, and there's your beloved children, and there's your grandchild. And this minister says, because you have now learned some truth and you want to come into God's church, but you can't do that until you jettison all the baggage of the past. And the baggage happens to be your husband there, and those children there, and those grandchildren. So you've got to separate, and probably ought to move away several states so you're not tempted. I've heard that edict issued to people. And then, maybe you can be good enough come into the church. 
As I've said, that's just like going down to the emergency ward at Mother Francis Hospital with a compound fracture of your right arm, and the doctor comes out there and says, you idiot, you're bleeding all over the, the floor. Here, get it, go home, fix that wound, bind it up, put it in place, stop the bleeding, and then come back and I'll take care of you. But don't come in here like that and make a mess all over my place because we want good people in church. We don't want people that have problems. We don't want people with trauma and with agony and with bad habits. We don't want cigarette smokers. We don't want people trying to kick a drug habit. We don't want people who are trying to overcome. We want people who have already overcome to be as good as we are. The Pharisees bound a heavy burden and grievous to be born. Well, I happen to know some families that went through those heavy burdens and grievous to be born. Also know some church leaders who married divorcees or who themselves divorced and remarried. It was different because what is good for the goose is not necessarily always good for the gander. It depends on which gander you are. Pharisees bound heavy burdens and grievous to be born. Would you say it would be grievous to be born to live years and years apart from a spouse you dearly love, only to find out later the doctrine was changed and it was all for nothing? Would that be grievous to be born? I would say so. And lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen of men. You know, actors are hooked on applause. There was a Broadway musical, a play that was called simply Applause, and it emphasized that point, that people will sacrifice themselves on the altar of vanity. They will do anything, have all their teeth pulled, I mean, get play, I have breast implants, rear end uh, implants of the opposite, uh, rebuild, they look like the bionic woman of the bionic man. They got so many artificial parts. And they come out there, you know, they're here they are, out to here with a blonde wig, and they got a stable full of about 340 blonde wigs to keep changing them, because I guess mice get in them or something, and they want to come out and shake around and sing little country western songs. Everybody says, wow, look at that. Well, you can go down to the drugstore and look at that. Just get a box of silicone and hold it for a while and look at it. There it is. So what? Acting can get people hooked. Why? Well, they want to entertain people. They want to be up there and get that applause. They want to have this relationship between them and the audience out there. All their works they do for to be seen of men. You know, we're all different. When we were little kids, we underwent the embarrassment of being forced to appear in the school play. I remember being a giraffe one time. And my mother had to sew this dark brown costume, I had to cut little eyes right here, and I had this silly board I had to hang on to and run around holding on to this board with this big old neck up there. I forget if I borrowed a stovepipe or what I did, but I'm going around. And this other little kid is hanging on to my belt, and we're a four-legged giraffe hopping around. At least I was anonymous. But you know, when you've got to play a part, and you've got to act in front of other little kids, Oh, man, that is humiliating. Anybody here ever done that? How many of you ever had to act in a little school play? Let me see your hands. Come on, confess. Oh, good. Well, you know, as you well know, you, you get up in front of somebody, and sometimes it is hugely embarrassing. But once you overcome that, people get hooked on it. Now, this is interesting. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is telling us what is wrong with a religious organization, a church, if you will, which was like a Jewish synagogue, people in a Jewish synagogue, and you can see it all around today. Now, this morning, my wife was flipping around, as she will do once in a while on a Sunday morning. We watched my program. And then after that, some other folks come on. And I hate to stand up here and imitate them, but I don't want to do it to my wife's Bible, but I was, I've told you before, I don't know why they do that. They never grab the Bible by the thick part. They always grab it by the thin part. And they grab it over here and then walk around waving this Bible and perspiring all over the place. And there's some mad, it looks like they just got stung by six hornets and one iguana lizard. I mean, there's some mad, an old mouth turned down, looking out there at the audience. They're mad. And they're gasping for breath and barely able, apparently they don't even need a microphone because they're shouting at the top of their lungs all the time. They don't just talk, they just shout nonstop. Most of them have got terrible, gravelly, hoarse voices, just like a cheerleader that lost it a long time ago. And... 
can't even really make much sense. And I'm saying to myself as I watch some of these guys, boy, they must be having fun. They must really be entertaining themselves. They are in their glory because they're up there going through all these things, these gyrations and gesticulations and everything, and they're having fun. All their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. They want to be recognized and to be called of men rabbi, which is teacher, lord, master, educated, intelligentsia, Mr. High and Mighty, Mr. Muckety Muck. Be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and you're all equal. You're all brothers. You're all one and the same. You're all on the same level, the same plane. Nobody's sticking out above the other one. You're all brethren. Call no man your father upon earth, obviously, from the Bible itself. There are many places talking about Father Abraham, etc., where it's not talking about your physical human father. It's talking about a spiritual office. Never call a man father spiritually, for one is your father, which is in heaven. What do they call the pope? What do millions call the pope? What do they call every Catholic priest? by that title. Yet he's supposed to be celibate in a pig's eye. Guard your grandchildren, I'll guarantee you. And that's enough of that subject. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. You know who some of the great people are sitting in this audience? Well, I can list a lot of names, but I'll tell you the great people in this audience are the people that were up there answering those telephones yesterday and this morning that get up at about dark 30 and come over here with the phones ringing, 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 and that's the most pleasant sound I can hear. I was up there preparing this sermon, the phone just ringing, ringing, ringing in my ears. It'd ring a while, a little red light would go on, and I knew somebody in the other end of the office had picked it up because I was on television all over the country today, and those phones were ringing. And the people that slaved and labored and worked at the summer camp last year and are going to do it again this year, and the people that got in here and slaved and labored and worked and volunteered their time never got a penny for it to help with all the activities that take place during our one-week Imperial Academy session, and the people that slave and labor and work to help other people, and their so-called little people that just serve. They do such menial little things as clean bathrooms and put up chairs and make coffee and serve crackers or cookies. And they are on an absolute equal, just because I'm on a platform, I want to be here so I can see your face and you can see mine maybe, but that doesn't mean I'm higher. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Maybe we could make up a quick recipe. You know, some of the women have recipes for unleavened bread, and that's a good idea because you can make some real delicious unleavened bread. I know. I had a lot of fun this morning, and I made me a bowl full so big of what I call Norskas that I've got it for the next several days. I've got to be careful to keep it completely covered in the refrigerator and not let any leavening fall on it, of course, so it's covered with plastic. Don't worry about that. We chased all the leaven out of the house. We, we got the vacuum, we hooked it up, just barely opened the door, and we kept it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Is it possible to sabotage your car? Could I walk by with cookie crumbs in my pocket and sprinkle them inside your car? Would that ruin your whole days of unleavened bread? That's something to really think about. Anyway, I remember some people went so far, they thought it was the days of unleavened beer. And people were pouring beer down the drain. They thought that because it foams, that's got to be leavening. So they wouldn't drink beer during the days of unleavened bread. Maybe we could take a bowl of meekness and mix it with two cups of repentance and add a little dash of brokenheartedness and fold in a great big cup of humility and let it bake for a lifetime and call it repentance or humble pie. But you know, there are recipes that some of you women have for unleavened bread, and we're going to be eating unleavened bread for seven days, and every time we eat it, we should be thinking of something that Jesus Christ told us. Let's turn to the sixth chapter of the book of John. Jesus certainly knew how to take people who, on the one hand, came huffing and puffing over there with their faces filled with hope and joy, hoping to get another meal, very, very excited over what he had just done. And he knew how to talk so straight to them that in just moments they became so furious they wanted to kill him. 
He went across, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them, that were diseased. He said, this, this man's got an incredible amount of power. He is healing sick and diseased people. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and he sat there with his disciples in a Passover, the feast of the Jews, was nigh. And Jesus saw this great company, and here they came, and they had nothing to eat. And I won't go through all of this, but it's the great miracle of the loaves. Verse 11, he distributed them, and they sat down, and the fish, and they all were fed. Verse 14, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus said, did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. This is the Messiah. This is that expected prophet, the Messiah, the one we've been expecting. When Jesus perceived they would come and take him by force to make him a king. I tried to cover that in my book entitled Peter's Story. That they lived in the here and now so far as they were concerned. We like to think of this as being then and there. To them it was here and now. And they thought Jesus was going to establish his kingdom now. And with that kind of unlimited power, they had the witness that he could heal disease, he could heal blindness, deafness, and dumbness, and withered hands, he could cause the lame to walk, he could raise the dead, he could walk on water, and he could also produce food where no food was. Out of a little tiny fish and a few loaves of bread, he could feed 5,000 people. So they wanted to hoist him on their shoulders and sing their version of, give me some men who are stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you 10,000 more. Start me with 10 who were stout-hearted men, etc. And they were going to march on Jerusalem and march right up into the temple and kick the Sanhedrin out and take over the government. They would take him by force and make him a king. He would be their king. He left. He departed to a mountain by himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over toward Capernaum. The wind rose and they saw Jesus walking on the water. I won't read all of that, but there's the account the next several verses. Now, in verse 23, or the verse 22, the day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereinto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread. After that, the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they took shipping, and they rode furiously over to Capernaum and looked for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, and that's a pretty good-sized lake. I've been there several times. I've been all around it and up above it and sat up there and got the idea for my book at, the, at that time called The Real Jesus, right there where I think Christ may have delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And they said, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Look at this response. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat that perishes, but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him has God the Father sealed. And then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. And they said, Listen to this. Is this not a mind-blowing question? They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then? that we may see and believe thee of all things. Is that difficult to understand or what? They had seen the cornucopia basket of, of fish and loaves of bread just coming into existence from nothing. They had seen blind and deaf and dumb and crippled healed miraculously seen all kinds of signs, which was the very reason why they wanted to gang up on him, put him on their shoulders, and march to Jerusalem and kick out the government. Now, because he had hurt their feelings, their attitude had changed. They said, what sign are you going to show us? And that was from a little bit of peak, a little bit of myth here. What sign will you show then that we may see and believe you? What do you work? Unbelievable question. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Is it leavened bread? 
Is it bread which is puffed up? Is it the bread of vanity? The life that we are to imbibe, the unleavened bread that we are to eat, which is to become a very part of our sinew and tissue and circulatory and musculature and all the various systems of our body in this next week, because after all, bread is the staff of life. And if you eat unleavened bread every single day, maybe up to three times a day, as I pointed out at the Passover service, what you eat becomes a part of you. You ingest it, you digest it, it flows out to all of your little capillaries that are, that are waiting there for their little blood uh, discs to carry food and oxygen and so on to your cells, and you actually are nurtured by the food you take in. Jesus said, notice how they get, got so angry when he said it, the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world, verse 33. They said, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Now an argument began to occur, and the Jews murmured, verse 41, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So immediately they said, now wait a minute. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? They didn't say that when he was feeding them over there with miracle food. They didn't say that when they were marveling and discussing and saying, did you see that blind man? Now he can see. They weren't arguing like that when they saw the deaf here or the maimed and crippled walk. They certainly weren't arguing when they were sitting there enjoying some of the best bread and fish they'd ever put in their mouth. Probably tasted like maybe smoked haddock or something with lovely bread. It had to be pretty, pretty good because it was uh, divinely produced. They had no arguments then. But now they've got this argument. Well, he can't be anybody because he's from our area. And we're nobody. So therefore, it's guilt by association. He can't be anybody because we know his family. And we're a bunch of dunces and dunderheads. And therefore, if you come from where I'm from, you aren't anybody. But if you come from afar, like the famous noonday volunteer fireman, I just come from afar. I'm just kidding. But anyway, then you are somebody. And that's old human nature, isn't it? He said over again in verse 48, I am that bread of life. And verse 50, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the unleavened bread which came down from heaven. The Bible does not say, and Jesus didn't add the words unleavened bread, but you and I know that the kind of bread he is is unleavened bread because it does not have anything in it that would puff up or create or cause vanity. The emphasis in God's word is not the emphasis that was placed upon these days by the parent church for about 20 or 30 years way back in the 50s and 60s. And that emphasis was... We are to think during these seven days of putting sin out of our lives. The emphasis was always on getting the leaven out. Now, that supposes that you do something. That supposes an action on your part. It supposes you have the power, the will, the character to do exactly that. I will eschew this. I will ignore that. I will avoid the other thing. I will, in my righteousness, get rid of the crumbs of leaven in my life. But you can't do that on your own. You are utterly helpless like the Israelites boxed in before the Red Sea. You have to stand still and see the glory of God. You are helpless. Many people are helpless in front of a little bunch of weed rolled up in a little white piece of paper treated with chemicals. And they just bow down, prostrate on the floor, and weeping and whimpering, Oh, little weed, I worship you. You are my master. I am your slave. I give in to you. But the point is, it is addictive, and people are absolutely enslaved to it. Putting sin out of your life seems to imply that you do something. That is, therefore, not much of a surprise to me when I hear that some of the ministry of that church were telling their people, well... No, you don't need to eat unleavened bread every day of the seven. All you need to do is, if you happen to be the kind of person who likes bread, now, frankly, I'm not, I don't eat much bread, but even when I get around to eating bread, that's the kind of bread it ought to be. Oh, no, no, that isn't what it says. It says, 
Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And what a beautiful typology. What a perfect picture. If you were a Baptist, a Methodist, Episcopalian, Lutheran, or Seventh-day Adventist, why not do it on the first week in June just for the fun of it? If you don't want to observe God's day and God's sacred and holy calendar because of the typology, because of what it teaches you, because of what it symbolizes and what it means. It means to imbibe Christ. It means to make Jesus Christ and his example a part of you. It means to become like him, to live as he did, to react to every kind of stimulus, sociological, spiritual, political, military, whatever, in exactly the same way he did, to literally, not figuratively, turn the other cheek, to literally, not figuratively, pray for your enemies and those that despitefully use you and persecute you, and to be like Jesus Christ in every way. The days of unleavened bread teach us not only that we put the leaven out of our homes physically, but that we observe the feast of unleavened bread spiritually, and that we are to become completely unleavened. In 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, we'll conclude, turn to that right quickly, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that was in a large pagan Greek city. These are pagan Greeks that have been converted and come into God's true church. And he says of them, because of incest that was tolerated in their congregation, your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We talked about bread and about how it can rise in an hour, hour and a half or two. And like one rotten apple will spoil the whole box and so on. Purge out there for the old leaven. What is he talking about? Purge sin out of your midst, out of your personal lives, and out of your collective lives in the congregation. That you may be a new lump, which they weren't yet. They still had the leavening there. He's saying it's a future action. Get busy and purge it. As you are unleavened. A sixth grader in English class understands exactly what that means. Purge out spiritually, the spiritual leaven, as you are now unleavened physically. You are observing the days of unleavened bread. So go on to do spiritually what you are already doing and observing physically. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Written in the late 50s, on toward 59 A.D., long after everything that had been nailed to the cross, that's the word they use, had been nailed there, long after everything that had been done away in the death of Christ had been done away, the Apostle Paul, who says, have I not seen Christ, is saying to a Gentile church, therefore let us, you and me, you Gentiles, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you know, there are people who will argue that that means actually in some fluffy Away, they spiritualize it away. Well, we keep it as a feast kind of in our minds, in our hearts. I mean, every day, all the time. It doesn't mean to really keep the feast. Oh, it doesn't? Keep the feast? What about the Feast of Tabernacles? It's going to be kept by all nations or else the drought and the plague and the famine will come upon them in Zechariah, the 14th chapter. You read of that, the very first great holiday, the very first great event on the calendar that Jesus Christ is going to institute after his second coming, Zechariah 14 is to command Somalia, command the Sudan, command all of the nations of the world from Chile de Fuego and the tip of South, Af uh, South America to South Africa to China and Japan to come send their delegates, their representatives to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles because God's annual holy days are to be kept. What a pity it is that the churches of this world put their blinders firmly in place and they will not teach their people the beautiful meaning and the typology of God's annual holy days. So every time you eat unleavened bread during the course of this week, think of it as the bread of life. Think of it as imbibing and partaking of the very life of Jesus Christ and being like him in every way you possibly can. And now as we dismiss here in a moment, you'll have an opportunity. How would Christ visit and speak to and greet and talk among his brethren. 
Let's do that. Let's be like Christ, not only during the days of unleavened bread, but for the rest of our lives.